the one thing we really have trouble with is not just Paul on, on against patriarchy or against slavery, but Jesus against violence. That really messes up the normalcy of civilization, which, which promises us peace through victory, or peace through violence, if you will, which promises us an end to violence through violence. And I think Jesus says that is a bankrupt option because it has never worked. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week I have, returning as a guest, John Dominic Crossan. He is an Irish-American New Testament scholar, historian of early Christianity, and former Catholic priest who has produced both scholarly and popular works. His latest book, How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, Struggling with Divine Violence from Genesis through Revelation, is available now. John Dominic Crossan, welcome to Back to the Strong Towns podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Chuck. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to speak with you again. I want to start with the title. And one of the things that has drawn me to your work over time is that we agree on this. But I want to ask you this question and have you answer it in your own words so people can hear from you how you would propose this. What does it mean to be a Christian? And why is violence such a challenge to that? A Christian is somebody who is imbued with the spirit of Jesus. The simple as that. That it's almost as if you, you know, if you use the analogy of of a heart transplant, speaking literally, where your old heart is gone and you have a new heart, if all goes well, that's, that's beating in your breast. A Christian is somebody whose life vibrates to the spirit of Christ. It's almost like your old spirit, your natural spirit, your your normal spirit is gone and you're breathing with the spirit of Christ. I mean, that's what it means. It's, it's more than imitation. It's participation in the very spirit of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. So you have to know, you must know <laughs> what you're getting into. Who is this Jesus? What's he like? And what are you committing yourself to when you commit yourself to, to living, not just like him, but living almost in him, as it were. How is violence a challenge to that, that living? The fundamental understanding of Jesus, if I could use it with one example, since Palm Sunday is coming up in the Christian liturgical year in another week or so, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday before that last and fatal Passover on a donkey and possibly even on a nursing donkey if you read with Matthew that the little colt is trotting along beside the donkey, that means it's not only a female donkey, but a nursing donkey, and you really don't expect a man to be riding in one of them with the, with the nursing colt beside it. So this is a lampoon, a satire on Roman authority as Pilate would be coming into Jerusalem for Passover with extra troops from the coast, from Caesarea. And no doubt he'd be riding on a horse. <laughs> and it would be a stallion. It wouldn't be a female donkey. So this is a dangerous demonstration against Roman authority. But it also fulfills a prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 9 from the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Old Testament, that says when the Messiah comes, 
he will ride into Jerusalem not through shattered gates and conquest, but on a donkey to proclaim an end to war. So as a historian, I think Jesus did that. I think that was exactly what started off that week. And the only reason he wasn't dead by what we call Palm Sunday night was that the crowds were protecting him and to touch him would have endangered the riot. So that's the Jesus I find to be the historical figure. But by the time I get to the end of the New Testament, I find that we Christians, and I'm saying we Christians, have invented a second coming, as if he was gone in between, and he's coming back on a war horse, and he's coming back with the angels to slaughter all the evildoers and all the unjust, which means one of two things. Either Jesus changed his mind, or the New Testament has changed its Jesus. (laughs) You talk in the book a number of times, in fact, one of the central themes is justice. You describe a God, a Jesus, of distributive justice as opposed to a justice of retribution. What's the difference between those two, and and why is it such a central theme in this book? Well, the ordinary use that we have of justice in, in everyday use here in America, at least, if we talk about justice, it's almost without any qualification. I mean, we're usually talking about what I call retributive justice, our punishment in plain language. So if you talk about the Department of Justice, it's really not into distribution. If you talk about the Uniform Code of Military Justice, we're talking about punishment in that. So justice normally tends to mean retributive justice. The trouble is that in the Bible, when justice is used without any qualification, it's about distributive justice. That means everyone getting a fair share of whatever you're talking about. And in the Bible, it means getting a fair share of God's world. Now, even if you think of it for a second, logically, leave the Bible aside for a moment, you couldn't have retributive justice unless punishments were distributed fairly. So the basic meaning of justice, when it's said without any qualification, is you're talking about distribution, and then it's the question of what are we distributing, of course, before you go on. So we have done a huge illogical step by making justice mean, when unqualified, Retributive justice, it should mean, and the Bible does it. So from one end of the Bible to the other, when you cry out, say, God is a God of justice and righteousness, or when some peasant praying the Psalms cries out for justice, they ain't crying out for punishment. You know, most of us don't do that. (laughs) They're crying out for a fair distribution of the world. So before you ever get to Jesus, and in this, Jesus is absolutely in the biblical tradition and is simply a good, a good Jew, to put it bluntly, living according to his tradition. So from the Torah through the prophets, it's the cry for justice on this earth from an oppressed people that really is what justice is about. And therefore, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and what it would be like if God sat on Caesar's throne, pretty much everyone in his audience knew what he was talking about. They knew he wasn't talking about heaven. We're talking about a a just world down here below. And, of course, that's what's going to get him crucified because Pilate wouldn't have crucified him if he just went around saying we should love one another. But he went around saying this system is not just. That's what gets you crucified in the first century. When you describe God, you describe a God of nonviolent distributive justice. Yet you point out in the book many, many times where 
violence and retributive justice sneaks into the text. And you attribute that to civilization. What are some of the ways that violent normalcy of civilization has crept into the Bible? And kind of how has it changed the way that people read the Bible? Let me just start with an example from Genesis. The opening chapter of Genesis, Genesis 1 in general, which is not, of course, the first chapter written. It's really a, close to the last chapter of the Old Testament, but put up front there because of importance. When human beings are created in this story, they're created and immediately given the image and likeness of God. I, that's a bad way of putting it. They're created in the image and likeness of God. So the first great distribution, if you will, by God in the Bible is God's own identity given to human beings. And that's immediately explained as their responsibility to run the world the way God does. And that's all quite clear in Genesis 1 before we even get going. Now you get to Genesis 6 to 9. What about this great flood when God's slaughtering everyone except, I suppose, (laughs) the great white sharks or something? Where did that come from? Well, the story is all over Mesopotamian tradition, long before the Hebrews ever got it, that there was a great flood and that some of the, some of humanity and all of creation was saved by it. So here you have the Hebrews. They're stuck with this story. That's part of their tradition. They're living in the Mesopotamia, in the Fertile Crescent, and that, that's their whole tradition. So what are they going to do with it? Well, they tell it. They think, well, God must have done it if, if that's the story. But then they make two changes. The first change is that God would only have done that, not because human beings are creating a, a lot of noise, as the Mesopotamian tradition said, but only because they were violent. But then you see, well, that means God sucked into human violence by divine counter-violence. And then at the end of the story, they try to clean it up, clean up the story they're stuck with by saying, yeah, yeah, but God said, I'll never do that again. In fact, I'll make a covenant with you that I'll never do that again. And it is unconditional. It's nothing like, unless, of course, you guys do this, that, or the other. So what they're trying to do, as it were, is struggle against what I call the normalcy of civilization. And in this, in this case, it's actually the normalcy of the Mesopotamian tradition. They can't quite deny it by saying it never happened because they, they think it must have happened if everyone says it did but they're trying to interpret it. So the struggle begins early, very early, and then continues. You quote in Genesis, and actually that was probably the part of the book I struggled the most with, just because I'm not, (laughs) most of the stuff that I've read of yours and others has been New Testament stuff. The Old Testament and and tying in the Assyrians and Samaria, it was absolutely fascinating. In Genesis, you have the story of Cain, the farmer, who kills his brother Abel, the shepherd. And and I want to read this thing you wrote. You said, the mark of Cain is on human civilization, not on human nature. Escalatory violence is our nemesis, not our nature. Our avoidable decision, not our unavoidable destiny. It is our original sin, but could then and can still be overcome. How much of this is a struggle of civilization versus humanity, versus our, our own human nature? I'm looking very closely almost at two things at the same time. I'm looking at the whole Sumerian background because the Sumerians went through what's called the Neolithic Revolution. That's the huge transition from herding to farming. 
the settle down life on the irrigated plains of the the Mesopotamian plains, you know, between the Euphrates and the, the, the Tigris, which flood every year, lay down silt, and if you're ready for them, and, the, and <laughs> but it's a very dangerous place because you're trapped between two rivers. I mean, it's much much easier to be in Egypt when you just have to stay on either side of one river. But anyway, we talk about Iraq, which is Mesopotamia, of course, as being the cradle of civilization. That's not my term. That's the term that's used for the the invention of what you might call the agricultural, the settle-down life, instead of the herding or the hunting and gathering life. That happened at a certain time. It happened not only in Mesopotamia, but it happened for the first time ever in Mesopotamia. And this, what was fascinating about that was the Mesopotamians, the Sumerians, had invented writing, so they were able to think about it. And the way they thought about what they were going through was by a series of disputes between gods for them, say the, the goddess of cattle would dispute with the goddess of grain about who is the more important. And you can see they're thinking about the domestication of cereals, grains, the domestication of cattle. Wow, which is the more important? And then, of course, they also have the god of farming and the god of herding. And they're arguing, they're brothers, by the way, they're arguing who's more important. This comes over into the Bible as... Cain and Abel, Cain's the elder, Abel is the younger. Cain, the Bible insists quite correctly, is the farmer. And in this story, as it begins, the farmer kills the herder. And that's the most succinct way of explaining the Neolithic Revolution. The farmer kills the herder. Serious economic implications. Which is huge. The chapter 4 of Genesis is, I'm now speaking literally, the most self-conscious and correct summary of the Neolithic Revolution, which, generally speaking, took between five and 10,000 years on the plains of Mesopotamia to really climax in the dawn of civilization. But in that story, what's interesting is that the farmer kills the herder, of course, Cain kills Abel. Then he builds the first city. Well, yeah, we, we know that's what happens. Farmer kills herder, builds city, and in a couple of thousand years, the city will eventually, as it's now doing, will kill the farmer. So the end of that chapter, though, about five generations after Cain kills Abel, Lamech boasts that he's already killed somebody for striking him. And that if anyone kills him, his tribe will exact none of this sevenfold vengeance, but 70 times seven. So what that chapter presents me with, and I don't think I'm reading into it that isn't intended, is that escalatory violence is almost the first thing we we have once we get out of Eden. You know, and I've eaten the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is called conscience, and the first thing we have is escalatory violence. So I find that warning there, and I think it's not unfair to use the term, that mode of culture that sociologists and anthropologists call civilization, which always means they settle down farming life. As the dawn of civilization as, as the normalcy of civilization because pretty soon you're going to have to say well we have to defend our farms we can't just move on if somebody comes in here and wants to take them over so violence will start to escalate it's not that herding groups didn't attack one another of course they did but you always could possibly move on but now you have to defend yourself 
and in fact, you're going to invent empire very fast because empire means where would we be safe? Where could we draw a line? Where could we hold the line against anyone who might come in? And it'll get bigger and bigger and bigger until you want to defend the whole world against yourself. So escalatory violence is the midwife that I see beside the rocking cradle of civilization. I thought it was beautiful. And I had never read this in this way before till you pointed it out. The staining of the ground with Abel's blood as opposed to some other type of retribution as a deeper metaphor, a deeper analogy to what this violence actually has done to humanity. Can you elaborate on that one a little bit? Because I did find that to be a very beautiful and inspirational way to look at Genesis. You know, I'd read, I'd read lots of this before. You read fast, you don't notice. This time I was doing close reading. I was going word by word and there was no hurry. It was the first time I noticed, and I don't know if most people know that, if you ask, when is the word sin first used in the Bible? You know, most people would probably get, oh, that's in the garden, that's something to do with the fall. Exactly. Yep. And it's not. It's, it's when God warns Cain that sin is something like a feral beast that, that crouches at your, the tent flap of your tent in the desert. It's, it's waiting to, to pounce on you. But God, says Cain, you can defeat it. You should defeat it. There's nothing about, oh, you just can't do it. I mean, there's, uh, you know, sin is just too powerful. But that's the first time it's used. And then after Cain kills Abel, you know, and thinking of the Bible, which has lots of punishment, we're saying, okay, now let's have some punishment. I mean, what's God going to do to Cain? What he does is mark him so nobody can kill him because the ground has rejected him. You could put that into the farming life has rejected him. He's rejected backwards beyond civilization, if you will, into, oh, I don't even want to say a herding life, into wandering in the wilderness. But Cain himself says, you have done it. God says, no, the ground has done it. If you have desecrated the ground, if you think of what human violence throughout history does to our world, or even violence directly to the world does to it, that's a poetic warning. I mean, you think the ground didn't cry out. I mean, how does the ground reject Cain? No, but metaphorically, there's a terrible truth in there that human violence is not just something we do to one another and the ground stays untouched by it. It also is violence against the earth itself. And that's in chapter four of Genesis. We barely got going. <laughs> right, right. I want to provide some context because the belief in divine punishment in antiquity has some serious social implications. If you're disobedient, you're going to be cursed and punished. But the reciprocal of that is if you're punished, you must have been disobedient at some point. This was used to really ostracize many, many people in the time of Jesus, was it not? Yes, it's a kind of a two-way street. The Deuteronomic theology that goes way back warns that if you do, if you obey the Lord your God, you will be blessed. If you disobey the Lord your God, you will be punished. But then it also is reciprocal. Here's somebody who's suffering tremendously or their country has been invaded. Ooh, they must have done something and they're being punished by God. So that two-way street of reward punishment looking in, in both directions is really a terribly, maybe I would be fair to say it's the one thing that I'm struggling against in the entire 
Bible because I think it is profoundly, profoundly wrong. I think there are serious consequences for what we do. But a consequence for me is built in internally. The example I use, you may remember in the book, is that if, you, if a drunk driver crashes into a, into a tree and is killed by the impact, that's what I call a consequence. It flows internally from the action. If a drunk driver crashes into a tree and is fined by the police, that would be a punishment. It flows externally. Now, I think it is a crime against divinity and humanity when the Israelites taught or were told that the reason you're being invaded is you're being punished for your sins when the truth is that they're living in the cockpit of the ancient world, they're living on the high road of conquest. Nothing that Israel, nothing that tiny Israel could ever have done, you know, when, the assert, when they're in between the two great superpowers of Mesopotamia and Egypt, or of Anatolia and Egypt, they're right in the middle. So if they had spent their whole lives on their knees praying, the only thing that would be different is they would have died on their knees praying. Right. Because Egypt is moving north, or Mesopotamia, you know, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, whoever is moving south, and they're in the middle. So to say that's a divine punishment would be like, you know, you or I going out and standing in the middle of a interstate and wondering why God is hitting us with trucks. You say, well, it's, it's your location. It's where you are. So when the Bible is filled with people crying out, give us mercy, give us forgiveness, no wonder. Now, the ambiguity of this, Chuck, is that it may well be that the only reason this tiny tribal enclave, Israel, continues to exist and hold out in that situation when, when the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and all the other tribal enclaves have you know, melted into the gene pool of the Middle East. Maybe that's the only thing that holds on to them, is this idea that, well, what's happening is a punishment for God, and if we are good, and if we are patient, God will be merciful. Maybe, maybe, even though I think that is awful theology, I think it may have given some meaning to people who otherwise would have to say, well, the reason this happens is we're just living in the wrong place. Right, right. You talk about Deuteronomy and, and some of the other books in the Old Testament as being influenced by essentially that belief as these uh, conquerors kind of washed over them. This was an explanation for the, the life they were living, right? It was. And I mean, none of us, none of us, none of us can survive without meaning. So even if maybe the meaning is not good theology in the long run, it may help you get you through the night, as it were. So in one sense, I'm not mocking it, but, but I am saying that it leads to a huge amount then of, of problems because eventually you're going to say, well, how, how do we do about this? How come every empire we've ever known, talking about the Middle East, has had its boot on our neck? Could, could we be such awful people? Surely they're more awful than we are because they're, they're always the one doing the killing. So I think it warps our fundamental understanding of God. God becomes then the great punisher. The only alternative is to say God is unjust. And I, I think the huge theological mistake is to confuse human consequences with divine punishments. 
I don't think, in, in the book, I don't see any validity to the whole concept of rewards and punishments. But I do think there are serious consequences for what we do, and I think that's exactly what God tries to explain to Cain. There are consequences for what you do, and there's consequences for escalatory violence to yourself and to your world. It's as if God was saying, don't blame me. <laughs> I set you up to run the world in a certain way. You run it any way you want, but don't blame me for the consequences. When you get to Jesus, when you get to Christ, and you look at what you call his radicalism, his nonviolent radicalism, and you contrast that with the normalcy of civilization injecting that retributive strain back into his teaching. To me, that was, in one hand, kind of empowering and beautiful, but also a little bit sad and depressing that even people who heard his message, either firsthand or secondhand, or were very close to him, still had a very difficult time grasping the depth and radical nature of what he was sharing. And I think we have to face that. I mean, if I could leave Jesus aside for a moment, we know that, you know, in the year 4 BCE and in the year 66, there were two huge armed rebellions against Roman Empire, because Israel was undergoing the process of Romanization. And the Roman Empire was certainly not more cruel. It was more efficient, actually, than any other empire. So it mean, that meant it intruded into your life far more than, say, did the Persian Empire. But it's under the process of Romanization. In those two periods, with 70 years in between, there was two giant rebellions, armed rebellions. In the 70 years in between, we have lots of records in the Jewish historian Josephus of Massive nonviolent organized resistance. I mean nonviolent resistance. I'm, I'm not just talking about pacifism. I think Josephus himself was a pacifist. He said you should never rebel against the Romans because God gave them the power. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about nonviolent resistance. Jesus fits into that pattern. Jesus speaks of nonviolent resistance because God allows the sun to come up on the good and the bad doesn't punish them by giving the bad no son, and gives rain to the just and the unjust. So the model that Jesus is working with is we cannot use violence, so how do we handle evil? Do we just, you know, shrug our shoulders or withdraw into the wilderness or collaborate? And the answer is no. The answer is nonviolent resistance. And that is why, ultimately, of course, Pilate will crucify him. And Pilate is the most accurate interpreter of Jesus in the entire New Testament, to put it bluntly, because Pilate recognizes Jesus is a revolutionary. He's not just suggesting that the Roman Empire should be nicer or lower taxes or, you know, feed the hungry more. He's saying, your system is not the system of God. And Pilate also knows, however, that even though this person is speaking and gathering people against our law and order system, this person is not a military leader. He's not a guerrilla fighter. He's not a violent threat. So I don't have to, you know, get 12 crosses up there and crucify all his companions with him, which is how he would have done to somebody like Barabbas, who's in jail in Mark's story. The way the Romans handled nonviolent resistance was to crucify the leader. Public demonstration against the leader. You're still at it in a couple of years. You come back and take your next leader. And you're next, you get the message. 
Antipas did the same with John the Baptist. So Jesus is certified for me by Pilate, as it were, with the Roman stamp of disapproval. This man is a nonviolent revolutionary. Do what he did, and you learn like he has. You read the Gospel of Mark, and you get the very nonviolent Jesus. Yeah. But then when you start to get into Matthew and Luke and interpose the Q Gospel into those stories, you interpose a little bit of that normalcy back in. How does that happen, and why is that going on, even at this very early time? I make a distinction in violence. I talk about ideological violence, meaning that certain people might have in their in their minds, as it were, that others, certain other people are subhuman, are not human at all, are, you know not up to their level of civilization. They just have it in their mind. I call that ideological violence, just thinking it. That often advances into rhetorical violence. They start using terms about those people. If they're talking politics, they might call them traitors. If they're talking religion, they might call them heretics. Some disparaging terms are, you know, those rude titles that people use of some other group. That's rhetorical violence. Now, up to that point, there's no physical violence. But what has happened historically very often is if the person who's moved into rhetorical violence gets political power or gets power simply of any type, they may well act then with physical violence. I mean, if I could take an extreme example, and it is an extreme example. When Hitler wrote Mein Kampf in the early 1920s, all the language he uses about the Jews our pathological language, germs, disease, infection, all that language of rhetorical violence. Now, you could have read that maybe in the 1920s and figured this guy's an idiot. But when he got power in the 1930s, then already he'd laid the groundwork for, well, what do you do with diseases? You try to get rid of them. What do you do with infection? You try to curtail them. What do you do with germs? You get rid of them. So there is a terrible transition from ideological to rhetorical to physical violence. What worried me very much in the New Testament Gospels, now we're just talking about the Gospels, I don't see any time that Jesus uses what I would call physical violence. And that includes, emphatically includes what happens in the temple, which is a demonstration, not physical violence. But the rhetorical violence is escalating steadily from the earliest gospel, Mark, to John. It gets nastier and nastier. And you can see it by looking at the same statement that Jesus makes in Mark and then see how it is appearing copied from Mark but expanded in Matthew. Or you can even see it in Matthew, in chapter 5 of Matthew, in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said you should not call people names. You should not call them disparaging remarks about them. And in fact, you should love your enemies. All of that's in chapter 5. Now, when you get to what is it, chapter 23, Jesus has a long string, about eight or nine times. He keeps saying things, you brood of vipers. Brood of vipers, yeah. (laughs) But the Pharisees, and, you know, he ends up with a grand finale. You're going straight to hell. So before we ever get to the book of Revelation, I want to know... Well, does Jesus, from chapter 5 to chapter 23 of Matthew, change his mind? And if he does, fine, let's say that. Or does Matthew change his Jesus? Does he start by telling you how Jesus really was? And then as he, Matthew, gets into more and more fights with his 
own opponents. It's not just that he uses nasty language. I'm sure they were doing the same, by the way. But he makes Jesus, maybe 50 years earlier, the spokesman for his own rhetorical violence. So that's what happens in the Gospel. And you, you know when the Gospel of John talks about the Jews, it has Jesus speak that way. Right. The, a Jew, right. A Jew. So, that, I mean, I do understand that if, you know, if, say, in the 80s, Matthew might be a, let's say he's possibly a Christian Pharisee, and he's speaking and fighting and arguing with non-Christian Pharisees, and I have no doubt the two of them, two groups are saying equally nasty things about one another, like in a presidential campaign or something. But the trouble is that Matthew puts that on the lips of Jesus. He just doesn't say, I know Jesus said, love your enemies, that I just can't stand these guys. I think they're a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> right. you know, uh, fair enough. If you want to do that, that's fair enough. It's not that I'm scandalized that somebody in a, you know, an argument gets used nasty language. I don't like it, but it's reality. But the trouble is it goes back in the list of Jesus. And then Jesus is deep in rhetorical violence by the time you get to the end of the, the, the gospel. This is where I found your last book, The Power Parable, to be almost an essential before reading the, your new book, because it helped me understand Essentially, the audience that Matthew was speaking to, or the audience that Luke was was writing for, these are different people in different places at different times, essentially writing to different audiences. You describe Matthew as being in an argument with other Pharisees. You're going to have a much different tone in that debate than if you're Luke speaking to a, a Greek Hellenized kind of audience. Very much, and then. You know, in one sense, you could say Matthew is much more vituperative and nasty because he's in the middle of a fight with his fellow Jews, and maybe, as I said, even fellow Pharisees. Luke is much more elegant because, I mean, in a far more profound way, he has dismissed the whole Jewish tradition. He's, he's going for the Roman tradition. So in one sense, the, the, the nastiness of the debate tells me that Matthew senses he's probably losing <laughs> Because in my knowledge of debates, the nastier side, maybe I'm too influenced by presidential debate, but the nastier side is probably the one that's losing. The one who is above it all is probably 20 points ahead. And the one who has been very presidential or statesmanlike is probably maybe 10 points ahead at least. Right. So the only problem with it, Chuck, is really when this gets retrojected 50, 60 years onto the lips of Jesus. And if we only had one gospel, if we only had one version, we'd say, well, that's the way Jesus was. He just must have got fed up with all the, you know, he started off being a nice guy, and then he got fed up when he got some opposition and turned nasty. But I have four versions, and I can put them in chronological order. I can watch what happens, and what happens is a steady escalation of rhetorical violence. Brought about by the normalcy of civilization. Right by the enormity of civilization, which which is not something kind of out there. That's part of the thing in the book. It's not we have the, the good book and then we have the bad world. The struggle is inside the book as well. And we can see the struggle between a vision, which is radical for justice and everything else, and what most of us struggle to do, which is kind of to survive and take care of ourselves and our families and that's why I don't want to make this really, and I don't think I've ever suggested anywhere in the book, this is good against evil. 
it really, that doesn't help at all. It helps to see that there's a certain drag of normalcy and that even as human beings within evolution, we have to balance, even in our own country, what we want for ourselves and what we want for the good of our whole country because what's bad for the whole country is absolutely eventually bad for us. (laughs) I have skipped over many times the letter to Philemon until I read a book that you wrote that dissected it in incredible depth. And you return to Philemon in this book. Can you tell the story of the slave and how Paul changes from Philemon to, I think it's Romans later, or one of the other books where he seems to, let's say, adapt his view or have his view adapted, I think as you would say, in regards to something like slavery. Okay, and this is a great example. Thank you, Chuck. This is a great example of of the pattern, the rhythm I see throughout the Bible, the rhythm of sort of what I call assertion and subversion. It's like a heartbeat where you have expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction. The heartbeat of the Bible from beginning to end is a sort of radical assertion from God and then, okay, sure, sure, we're not going to deny this, but we get around it. So, for example, in the story of Philemon, what happens is Paul is in prison, and he is probably in prison in in Ephesus. That's the best guess. We're not certain of that. But it, it looks like he's in a, a governor's jail somewhere, and Ephesus is the best place. He's uh, chained to a guard, so he's allowed a certain amount of freedom. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to write a letter, of course, and he's a certain amount of support. But he could be dead tomorrow. So what happens to him is the slave Onesimus has got into serious trouble with his master Philemon, and he knows that this guy, Paul, is some kind of a big shot. And every time he comes to the house, there's all sorts of, you know, fuss about him. So he decides to, to flee to Paul for intercession. And this was accepted within Roman law as a kind of a cooling off period. If you were in serious trouble, could be put to death or whipped or flogged by your master. You could flee to somebody who was a kind of a superior to your master and implore, implore intercession. Okay, that was accepted as a Roman law. So it makes sense of why a runaway slave would go into a Roman prison. Presumably he's not a complete nitwit. You'd have to say, okay, that's what's happening. All right, he comes to Paul, and then he's converted to Christianity. Now, Paul has a perfect test case. Can a Christian, and this is all he's asking, he's not making any sweeping statements about slavery, he's asking, can a Christian have a Christian slave? How can you be equal and unequal in Christ? So his answer is, and he sends Anesimus back with the letter, you kind of imagine him knocking at the door and saying, uh, um, Master, I'm back, and there's good news and there's bad news. <laughs> well, and it wasn't just a private letter either. It was a... No, it's not a private letter, exactly. It's a, <laughs> it's a letter that has to be read to the whole church. Um, there's a house church in, in Philemon and his wife's house, and it has to be read to them. And... Paul dances backwards and forwards playing good cop, bad cop in a sort of a masterpiece of, of, <laughs> of persuasion, let us say. Or he might even say of, of <laughs> I always feel sorry for, for Philemon. He's kind of a, a masterpiece of manipulation right. as well. <laughs> he begins by saying things of, you know, I, I, I want you to do your duty, but I prefer you to act out of love. And then he keeps playing on, I'm, I'm in jail, I'm in, I'm in chains, I'm in chains. He's not whining. Paul never knew how to whine. 
but he's playing heavily. How can you refuse me? I'm an old man and I'm in chains for Christ. But the message is quite clear. You cannot have Onesimus as your slave. He is now a Christian. You must free him. And I can understand, of course, could imagine if there's other slaves in the house when Onesimus comes back with his news. <laughs> All of a sudden, Christianity asked, sounds pretty good, right? <laughs> yeah, they say, you know, tell me what, they, they pour some water on your head and then they have to free you? Is that it? Oh, good deal. Let's, let's, let's get that. What do you call it? Baptism. I went for that. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a socially explosive thing. I mean, it is. It's, to be fair, it's not just a private matter between one person. This can get into the, across the slave subculture of whatever town or city we're talking about. And the word's going out, there's, there's a whole bunch of weirdos here who are get called Christians or something, and they're against slavery. They say we, all the slaves should kill us in our beds. You know, it'll escalate like that. So by the time you get to Colossians and Ephesians, letters that were written in Paul's name, but after Paul's death, and there's a consensus of scholarship pretty much on that, you find it's taken for granted that, of course, Christians, masters and mistresses, will have slaves, but they should treat them kindly. But yeah. it's taken for granted they can have them. And, of course, it's also said the slaves should be obedient. So what we've quietly done is, Philemon is there for anyone who wants to read it thoughtfully, but we've quietly asserted it and then subverted it. It is taking that radical, radical message of Paul and basically softening it for civilization. For Roman civilization. I mean, a different civilization that didn't have a slave. And very much the same happens with the patriarchy, that Paul insists that in the family, the husband and wife are equal partners. And in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, everything he says about the husband, he says about the wife, everything he says about the wife, he says about the husband. And that they're also equal in the ministry, because when he's writing to the Romans, he talks about a woman being a junior, being first among, she and her husband are first among the apostles. So Paul takes it absolutely for granted that both in the family and in the ministry, women and men are equal, and it's up to God, whom God wants to be an apostle, not up to the church or anyone else to decide. But... It's the drag of Roman civilization, Roman normalcy, not really a Roman evil. I mean, it's a patriarchal society. It's a slave society. You may call that evil if you want to, of course, and we would probably do it. But for, as far as they're concerned, that's simply normal. And the people who are weird and abnormal are the, the people like the Christians. And the problem will be, Will they find their abnormality, to use a Roman vision, so much that they need to persecute them all, persecute some of them, persecute just the leaders, persecute, you know, warnings here and there? Because the Romans are going to recognize that this system is really diametrically opposed to ours. If they're right, we're wrong. And if we're wrong, then what are we going to do about it? Right. Right. As you get further from Mark, or as you get further from what you describe as the center, and get out to Revelations, you've got the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you've got wading through blood up to your waist. All of a sudden, God seems pretty violent. What happens there? 
I think what happens in terms of that book, and it, it really is a question you have to ask, why is not enough to say, well, it's violent. Why is this book so irredeemably violent? We have Jewish writings written after the destruction of Jerusalem, and you understand that they were saying the most violent things you could say about the Romans who devastated their homeland, burned their temple to the ground, and were crucifying 500 people a day around Jerusalem, says Josephus. And those Jewish writings are more likely to be saying, well, we're being punished for our sins. So why is John of Patmos so mad? I mean, I, I mean, so angry. And some people have said he's mad. I think the, the clue to it is the first two chapters of the book, because John is in exile on the island of Patmos off the west coast of Turkey. I suppose I should do a full disclosure that I've never been clear why being exiled to a Greek island is something <laughs> to be sad about. But maybe, <laughs> I've never been on, maybe I've never been on them in December, so <laughs> they might be different in the summer. But anyway, he's in exile there, and he's right the seven churches in an arc around the western coast of Turkey, around Ephesus and places like that. And he's really lighting into them. And what seems to be his main problem, his main argument against them, is they're acculturating to Roman normalcy. In other words, exactly what we've just seen in Colossians and Ephesians. They're probably Christians in each of these towns saying, well, I don't see why I can't be a good Christian and a good Roman. What's wrong with being a Roman citizen? Why can't you have it both ways? And what John wants to do is to make Roman society, Roman culture, Roman religion, the empire, the emperor, the whole, the whole thing, so absolutely, unbelievably evil, unthinkably evil, that you should have nothing to do without it, with it, which is a tactic very often used by any group who are under you know, extreme pressure from a much more dominant group, and they're afraid that their group, their small group, will start to, to, to default and go over to the main group. Make that main group as evil as you can, as, as absurd as you can, because nobody then will want to have anything to do with it. So I think that's what's going on in John. And, of course, the counterpart of that is exactly what we're seeing in Colossians and Ephesians, and maybe in the Acts of the Apostles as well, that these are making the first steps towards Constantine first steps to say, well, couldn't we have a Christian Roman Empire? Couldn't, couldn't we have Christianity and Romanita in a happy marriage? And in one sense, for better or for worse, these are the people who are seeing the future. Yeah, the future will be Roman Christianity with Constantine. So I, I think John's absolutely violent, and his language is gendered and violent. I mean, he talks about Rome as if it was a great central house of prostitution for the whole Mediterranean. It's, it's, it's not only violent language, it's gendered violent language. So I think that requires explanation. I think what the explanation is to try and make it so acculturation is impossible. But in the process, it makes Jesus come back, which means Jesus is gone. Of course, Matthew said, I'll be with you all days until the end. So... He's gone, he's coming back, and he's coming back violently. They've No more the donkey, he's coming back on a war horse with the angels to destroy the evildoers and to make a feast for the vultures of the air. So when I get to that point, it's not all of a sudden, 
I just want to get rid of this one book. That's not what's going on with me at all. I realize that's the pattern I've been watching through the entire Bible, from the Torah all the way to Paul, to Jesus, that when you have this radical, nonviolent Jesus, nonviolent resistance against evil, we will assert him, and he's still there. He is there. <laughs> he still rides into Jerusalem on that donkey. We haven't got rid of that. But we will invent a second coming, a return, or whatever term we want to use, which actually means that we're saying the incarnation failed. That in John's terms, the word became flesh and blew it. We have to come back and do it properly. So that's a pattern, which I find throughout the entire Bible, it's just the grand finale one, that the one thing we really have trouble with is not just Paul on, on against patriarchy or against slavery, but Jesus against violence. That really messes up the normalcy of civilization, which, which promises us peace through victory, or peace through violence, if you will, which promises us an end to violence through violence. And I think Jesus says that is a bankrupt option because it has never worked. And I think that is right. That's what makes me actually be a Christian. I think Jesus was right. I mean, other people said it too, that violence cannot destroy violence because violence apparently escalates. If we look at human civilization separately from human nature, what does your book and the findings of this book implicate for how Christians should lead their lives today. We, we live in this civilization dominated in many ways by violence. How do we as Christians, how do we as people who want to follow the teachings of Jesus, how are we to live today? But I would really ask Christians to do this effectively. I think we have to be, what I'm going to say, called bilingual. By bilingual, I don't mean English and Spanish or something like that. By bilingual, I mean that if we're talking within Christianity, as this book is, by the way, then we should be quite aware and quite unembarrassed by our tradition. We have to know what was said, why it was said, and all the rest of it. We should know our own tradition. We should know our own language. We should use our own Christian language. But when we go out into the public square, we should not use... Christian language or demand other people use Christian language, because that, that's not right. But we go out into the public square and we take from our vision questions of justice, an assertion that unless we as a species, I mean the human species, control violence, then if I can understand the last 10,000 years, and I'm not good at going back much farther than that, violence has always escalated. There's always been lulls, of course. If you happen to live during a lull, if you happen to live, say, from, from from about the 70 years between those two great revolts I talked in the Jewish homeland, you could say, oh, it's over. Now peace. The better angels of our nature have arrived. All is peace. It's a 70-year peace. It ended with a terrible, terrible revolt. So what we've been getting is what I call lulls, L-U-L-L-S, lulls, not peace. Because the vision of, norm, of civilization, I almost define the normalcy of civilization, is that we all want peace, and the way you get peace is by victory. That is really the mantra of the Roman Empire, of every empire that has ever existed. It's our own mantra as well. 
And I think the mantra that comes out of the biblical tradition from Torah to Jesus is that you will not get peace through victory. You'll only get peace through justice. Back to our distributive justice, of course. That when people feel, when enough people, or most people, or whatever percentage you want, feel, this is fair. This is fair. I'm getting my share of the world, okay? This person has got more. That doesn't bother me. I've got enough. That that vision is the only thing that will stop escalatory violence eventually destroying us. A few weeks ago on this podcast, I had an economist, a guy named Russ Roberts, and we talked about Adam Smith's book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And I I, I want to ask you this, because Smith drew a distinction between how we tend to behave one-on-one or in small groups, and how that differs from how we behave collectively, say, as governments or corporations or in transactions across long distances where we, we can't know the person individually. I wonder if you think there's any validity to that in how we act differently as part of a collective or as individuals. And if so, what can we do to make the impersonal more personal? Let me leave aside the Bible or anything else for a moment. Yeah. If we look at human evolution, at least in the last 10,000 years, there has to be, there has to be a successful dialectic, by a dialectic I mean like two sides of a coin where you can kind of distinguish them but you can't separate them into two. A dialectic between what the person wants for the person's own self and survival and what the group, even the group as a general deeds. Those two things can't be separated. Just not going to work. (laughs) The great evidence for that is in in the great species that have spread around the world like the ants and and the bees and species like that, that really cooperated, and that's why they've been so well. We are also a social thing. Of course, individuals want their own survival and all the rest of it, of course. But there has to be a dialectic with the survival of our group, whoever the group is. It could be a family group, a tribe group, a nation, whatever. You, You can't have one without the other. It's not going to work. So the glory and the the bane of America is our individualism, that everything we have pushes, pushes, pushes towards individualism. And it's not going to work if everyone thinks only of themselves. This is not a question of selfishness or anything else more. It just won't work because the common good is common. I mean, it's not out there somewhere and then there's all the individual goods. There's a sort of a interaction between the individual good and the common good. When the common good is not taken care of, the individual goods won't last very long. They may last for a while. So somehow or other, there has has to be both. And I, I sometimes wonder when people talk about Adam Smith, you know, the invisible hand that will guide the economy and everything will work beautifully. I sometimes wonder if the invisible hand of Adam Smith, if we've seen what it looks like, and it looks like a hand with an upraised middle finger. (laughs) But I don't think it works like that. I really don't think it does. I think the economy, if left to itself, will come out in favor of ruthless capitalism, and we get 1% with half, half half of everything, and the rest, Throughout human history, that sort of injustice has never, never succeeded in lasting long. Something terrible usually happens because enough people know that this is not right, this is not fair, and then the consequences kick in. 
I want to give you a chance before we're done to talk about your collaborator, Marcus Borg, who recently passed away. Beautiful writing with the two of you. I, I try to read every year since I first read it the last week, that Holy Week, because I find it to be really a good meditative book for me. Can you talk a little bit about Marcus Borg? Yeah, we've done so much together. In the last, oh, 20 years or so, I mean, we've spent so much time in one another. When I say we, I really mean Marianne and Marcus, Sarah, and myself. We've done what? Oh, we've done about 16 pilgrimages together. That means we took 40 people, I think, 11 times to Turkey, once to Israel, three times to to Ireland. And that's living very close with people, and we've been on vacations together. So, you know, in the last years, we've spent, oh, maybe three to four weeks almost in living with one another. I mean, either in their in their place or abroad or something like that. So we we know one another very well. So it was a, it was a terrible loss, and it was it was swift. It was sudden from diagnosis to death one month, which is both, of course, the terrible shock, and then also the the relief of knowing that somebody is not going to be suffering for a long time. So it's it's hard to know which which you want to think of more at the moment. But I think what was what was most important about Marcus for me is, of course, when he started speaking about the historical Jesus, you know, way back in the 70s or late 70s, you could count on the on one hand the number of scholars who were really even interested in the historical Jesus, the general view of scholarship was, oh, there's nothing there. We can't, we don't know anything about Jesus. Well, how can you talk about the historical Jesus? We know nothing about Jesus. It's hard to imagine that today. Right. But yes, I, way back, I remember very clearly in my own case, just a class that I was invited down to speak to the graduate class at the University of, of Chicago when in parables, the challenge of the historical Jesus came out. And just my own experience, and Marcus's was exactly the same. They say, yeah, yeah, parables are great, but you forget this historical Jesus stuff. Now, that's one part of Marcus. He, he never did. And he knew that the historical Jesus was important for the church. And that's what he wanted to do his professional work on and his work with the church. But the other thing that's equally important for me is Marcus, if you knew him, was a very gentle person. He didn't come in, you know fighting madly against fundamentalism or literalism. He said what he wanted positively, and if questions came up, he answered them. But I find that if you're going to be speaking about Jesus, especially about nonviolence and all of this stuff, and you're not really somehow displaying the style of Jesus, there's a kind of a contradiction in what you're saying and how you're acting. So I don't know if you can really speak convincingly about the historical Jesus when you're holding a gun, as it were, <laughs> right. to your audience, I mean, right. you know, and hitting them over the head and beating them up. With... So Marcus's way of doing it was very gentle. If, if, you were, if you saw this and had no problem with it, he was not going to attack you. But if you began to realize there's problems here and I want to know how to think about this, then Marcus was a very gentle teacher. And in some cases, you know, you might say of a teacher, who cares? But it seems to me there's a disjunction between your theme and your subject 
and your attitude and your style, if you're dealing with the historical Jesus and talking about nonviolence and loving your enemies and everything else, and you're acting to beat people over the head. So I think what was most important for me was that in him, the style and the theme or the subject and the attitude were very, very much simultaneously coincidental. The last time you were on a podcast, about 18 months ago, I asked you what you thought of Pope Francis, and your response was, so far, so good. I, I'm pretty optimistic. I wonder if you want to update that at all. I'm afraid not of anything I know. I, I think the real challenge that he has, and he mustn't surely know this, and I may have said this before, is that, you know, in the 60s, I was in Rome studying from, what, 59 to 61, just before the Council of 62 to 65, and we all thought John the Twenty Third had pulled it off. And by 69, when I left the priesthood, we knew it hadn't. I don't know how he can reform the Curia to be very, very straightforward. Yeah. Unless he gets rid of all the cardinals or reduces it to an honor, like Monsignor or something like that, and has a permanent synod of bishop, bishops representing the bishops of the world permanently in Rome to run the government of the church as the Pope and the bishops, as it should be in their theology. I think the cardinalate, except possibly as an honor, should have no more power and certainly should not be electing the Pope or anything else like that. I think that should be done by the bishops. If you say, how can all the bishops of the world do it? It's called voting on the web. <laughs> and it can be done quite securely. I mean, you can keep the white smoke, if you like white smoke. That's only a telephone call. So it really has to do with the reform of the Curia. Otherwise, it doesn't make any difference what he says. It doesn't make any difference what he does, because we've seen it happen. I read last week that uh, he hinted that Pope Emeritus sounded like a really nice title and that what Pope Benedict had done would be something that him and likely future popes would also do as kind of a new precedent. And I have no problem with that. The difficulty is, though, if you keep, if you keep you know, electing somebody at 70, that doesn't give them much time to get anything done. So I, I think it should be, should be very, very good. It should be taken for granted that when the Pope feels he is no longer doing the best he can, that would be very nice. I would not mind at all retiring to somewhere like Castle Gandalfo <laughs> in the summer in Ro Rome during the year. I think it would be a rather lovely life. But the important thing is, can he really reform the Curia? Because with all due respect, the Curia is in charge, not the Pope. Yeah. The, the attitude of the Curia is Popes come and go, and it can come and go pretty fast. And we're still here. We may be the Curia. I mean, the, the, the individuals may change. So he's going to have to decide, is he really in charge of the Church, or is the Curia in charge of the Church? And I think the answer should be, in good, good Roman Catholic theology, Pope and bishops yep. are the hierarchy of the Church. Fascinating. John Dominic Crossan, I just want to say thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your time, and I, I hope you have a beautiful Easter. Thank you very much, and the same to you, Chuck, and thank you. Anytime. Well, let's talk again soon. I don't want to push you, but I, I, <laughs> I would be sad if there's no more John Dominic Crossan books for me to uh, read, so... I guarantee there'll be more. Thank Please you. God. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, you take care.
They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Father's father's father's. Yeah. And from our father's 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 father's. Yours, don't labor the point. And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct? What? The aqueduct? Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. That's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, Reg. Remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you the aqueduct and sanitation are two things the Romans have done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously yeah. the roads. I mean, the roads go without sand, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct, and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine. Yeah. Education. Yeah. yeah, you're all right. Fair enough. And the wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's something yeah. we'd really miss, Reg, if the Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly like to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace? 